that seemed to be a nice transition with a full band, so uh, went a little off script this morning. But my name is Jamie, if you're new, glad that you're here. Um, welcome into this place this morning. I hope you're encouraged by uh, even what you've experienced thus far as we gather here in this place and what you're going to experience in the moments to come as we open up the scriptures together. Uh, if you are new or you've been out for the past couple of weeks, we recently launched a sermon series that's going to carry us throughout the course of the summer, a series entitled Cruciform, that word simply meaning having the shape of a cross. As many of you have heard me say at various points along the way, if you've been around this church for very long, the cross is the great jewel of the Christian faith. It's multifaceted. As you spin a jewel, it shines with new brilliance and beauty. It's kind of like a stained glass window, which is why we've chosen this particular graphic for this series. A stained glass window refracts light so that if you were staring at a stained glass window and you moved a little bit to the the right or a little bit to the left, everything would radiate with a different beauty and brilliance than it did before you moved that inch. The cross of Jesus Christ is the great light-refracting jewel of the Christian faith. And so the goal of this series is really simple. It's to spin the jewel, to see the radiance of all that Jesus has accomplished for us and to do it one facet at a time. Coming back to that series title, Cruciform, Shaped by the Cross. That's a little bit of a play on words because as I've said over the course of a couple weeks now, if we grab hold of what this series is meant to communicate, we will find our lives shaped by the cross doctrinally as we grow in our understanding of these various beliefs that we're going to talk about week in and week out, the beliefs themselves. We will find our lives shaped by the cross personally as we grow in our understanding of how these beliefs matter in our very own lives. We will find our lives shaped by the cross communally as we grow in our understanding of how these beliefs matter in our relationships with other followers of Jesus Christ, and we will find our lives shaped by the cross missionally as we grow in our understanding of how these beliefs matter in our evangelistic efforts to point people to Jesus. And so with that being said, if you have a Bible, you can open up to 1 John chapter 4, verse 10. We will not be there for very long, similar to the last couple weeks. We're going to be all over the Bible this morning, but we'll begin with 1 John chapter 4, verse 10. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one underneath one of the rows in front of you nearby. You can grab one of those Bibles and open up to this morning's passage. If you don't own a Bible or the one that you happen to have in your possession is a little, little difficult to track with in terms of its translation, please take that Bible as the church's gift to you. As you're opening up this morning, uh, let me just begin by saying this. Last week, we, we looked at the first of many facets of the cross that we're going to look at throughout the course of this series, namely the beautiful facet of justification. And so last week we talked about the significance of Jesus having satisfied the legal demands of our sin, having taken our guilty record upon himself and gifting us his perfect righteous record by grace through faith so that God the Father can declare us righteous in his sight. If you're a, a person who struggles with guilt if you're a person who struggles with condemnation, if you're a person who struggles with self-righteousness, then I would implore you, if you weren't here last week, to go and listen to the podcast. I think you'll be served well in that. But this morning, we're going to spin the jewel once again, and we're going to take a look at a second facet of the cross, the beautiful facet of propitiation. That's a big theological term, make no mistake about it, one of the bigger words in the Bible, but it's a term that, that we should not ignore because it's a term that helps to make sense of one of the many things that Jesus suffered and died to accomplish. And a few places in the New Testament we see this word propitiation. I'll just give you a few. We'll begin with 1 John chapter 4, verse 10, which says this. John says, in this is love. 
Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Romans chapter 3 verse 23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Hebrews chapter 2 verse 17 says, Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, Jesus did, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. What does this five-syllable, rarely used in our vernacular term, actually mean? What is propitiation? When we talk about propitiation, what are we doctrinally speaking of? Well, similar to last week, I'll, I'll start by giving you Uh, Wayne Grudem's definition from his massive 1,300-page systematic theology. I like it because it's both clear and it's concise. He says this. He says, propitiation is defined as a sacrifice that bears God's wrath to the end and in so doing changes God's wrath toward us into favor. That going back to last week, unlike justification, we're not talking about a forensic legal term here. This is not judicial courtroom language. We're we're talking about the wrath of God when we talk about the word propitiation. Just like the the doctrine of justification, you actually sing of this doctrine often in this place, whether you realize it or not. You actually just did it. Lyrics like, till on that cross as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. For every sin on him was laid. Here in the death of Christ I live. Or... I once was dead in sin, alone and hopeless. A child of wrath I walked, condemned in darkness. Or, rock of ages cleft for me, let me hide myself in thee. Let the water and the blood from thy wounded side which flowed be of sin the double cure, save from wrath. There it is. And make me pure. That every one of those songs is a declaration of the beautiful facet of the cross known as propitiation. A doctrine that many, even within Christian evangelical circles, do their best to dodge these days. Yet a doctrine that saturates the scriptures. There are more than 20 different words in the Old Testament uh, that the Old Testament writers use to communicate the idea of God's wrath. More than 20 different words. And those 20 different words total nearly 600 Old Testament occurrences. I'll give you just a few of the 600. Leviticus chapter 26, in the covenant sanctions that God lays out for Israel, he says this, but if in spite of this you will not listen to me, God says, but walk contrary to me, then I will walk contrary to you in fury, and I myself will discipline you sevenfold for your sins. Numbers chapter 11, verse 1, in the wandering of Israel in the wilderness We're told the people complained in the hearing of the Lord about their misfortunes. And when the Lord heard it, his anger was kindled. And the fire of the Lord burned among them and consumed some outlying parts of the camp. In one of the prophetic oracles found in the book of Ezekiel, we're told, Ezekiel chapter 7 verse 8, God says, Now I will soon pour out my wrath upon you and spend my anger against you and judge you according to your ways. And I will punish you for all your abominations. And my eye will not spare, nor will I have pity. I will punish you according to your ways while your abominations are in your midst. Then you will know that I am the Lord who strikes. These are just a a few of the nearly 600 Old Testament occurrences describing the wrath of God with various terms. Now, most people don't have a problem seeing the wrath of God in the Old Testament. If you were to talk to most people on the street... 
they would be able to pick up on that. But there are many who don't believe that the God of the New Testament is the same God. In the first century, a guy by the name of of Marcion became the the spokesman, the chief spokesman of a belief that the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament are two different gods. He believed that the creator of the world is either evil or ignorant. He believed that the God of the Old Testament is not the father of Jesus. He believed that the only legitimate books of the Bible are parts of Luke's gospel and 10 of Paul's letters. So he rejected 55 and some change of the books of the Bible, essentially. And he was ultimately a universalist, believing that all would be saved since God is not a God of judgment. And I would say that though most people would not label themselves as such, there are a lot of Marcionists living in the world as we know it. Marcionism is alive and well today. There are a lot of people in the world who are all about Jesus, but who have no place in their theology for a wrathful God or a doctrine of hell. And the problem with that thinking Just a couple of problems. Number one, Jesus spoke about hell more than anyone else in the Bible. And secondly, the concept of God's wrath doesn't disappear when we get to the New Testament. In the New Testament, we encounter passages like Matthew chapter 3, beginning in verse 7, where we're told, But when John saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, that's John the Baptist, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance and do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Maybe more compelling, most of us in this context, we know John 3.16. We've at least heard it. We've seen it on a bumper sticker somewhere, maybe on a plaque on grandma's wall. I don't know. Like it, we're, we're familiar to some degree with, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life, which makes it all the more fascinating that 20 verses later, John chapter 3, verse 36, we're told, whoever believes in the son has eternal life, Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. That going back to John uh, 3.16, this idea of not perishing has a more specified terminology to it in John 3.36, which is the idea of not continuing to bear the wrath of God, not continuing to have the wrath of God remain on us. The Apostle Paul on a number of occasions, talks about God's wrath. These are just a few. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 6, Paul says, Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Colossians chapter 3, verse 6, Put to death, Paul says, therefore what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, Paul says, the wrath of God is coming. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 9 and 10, Paul says, For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come, Paul says. Unless we think that Jesus himself has nothing to do with this idea of God's wrath, listen to the picture that Revelation 19 paints of the second coming of Jesus to set all things right. Revelation 19, beginning in verse 11, we're told, 
John says, Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. And the one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. He's talking about Jesus there. And in his righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. And listen to this. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. That that John argues that with the same effortless authority that he spoke the world into existence, Jesus will speak and the power of his authoritative word will bring down his enemies like a sword in battle. And they will experience the fullness of God's wrath, John says. That's the New Testament. And yet, many, even within Christian evangelical circles, have declared this idea of God's wrath to be expendable. I'll give you just a few reasons why that might be. This is not an exhaustive list. For one, I think there are many who struggle to understand how there could possibly be a redeemable form of fury. How do you make sense of that? I mean, the best category that we have is that thing we call righteous indignation, And yet even the most noble human displays of righteous indignation are are laced with imperfection. Leon Morris says in his book, The Atonement, which is a great read, by the way, he says, whenever we say anything about God, there must always be the implied qualification, quote, of course, without the defects that we see in people, even at their best, end quote. And he goes on to say, this applies not only to wrath, but to everything we say about God. We do not hesitate to speak of the love of God, but can anyone say that that puny thing human love is at its best is really what we mean when we speak of God? The use of a term in human life may well be a guide to the quality in God of which we wish to speak, but in no case can it be said that God exercises the quality with all our human weaknesses. Just because we struggle to wrap our minds around the idea of a fury that's innocent and pure, that doesn't mean that it cannot and does not exist. And in fact, the Bible, as God's divine revelation of himself, declares that it does, in fact, exist. Another reason why I think many people struggle to embrace this doctrine is that many find the idea of a, a wrathful God to be pagan and archaic. I mean, it is pretty interesting that the word propitiation is a word that Christians actually have in common with other world religions, if you think about it. Practically, anyone who believes in a God sees the need to somehow stay on that God's good side. And so you see many religious people in the world seeking to use our our word this morning to propitiate their God. Whether it be through offering sacrifices to that God or serving that God in some sort of way, it's the... The paying of a price to appease the anger of one's God, to get on or stay on the friendly side of one's God. And so people take the pagan idea of propitiation, this sort of Joe versus the volcano kind of thinking, which, by the way, if you haven't seen that, that's a, a sermon application point this morning. And they, include that, they conclude that it has no place in Christianity. After all, the, the gods of paganism are depicted as short-tempered, moody, and easily provocable, only caring about human beings when human beings make them angry. But what if the Christian understanding of this 
idea of propitiation is different from the pagan understanding. The, the, the two are, in fact, very different from one another. For one, the God of the Bible is not short, short-tempered, moody, and easily provocable. In fact, roughly a dozen times in the Old Testament, God is said to be slow to anger. Exodus chapter 34, verse 6 is one of those occasions where we're told, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Slow to anger there means literally having a long fuse. Unlike the short-fused gods of paganism, the Bible tells us that God's anger is at times delayed. Isaiah chapter 48, verse 9, God says, For my name's sake, I defer my anger. The Bible tells us that God's anger is at times restrained. Psalm chapter 78, verse 38 says, Yet he, being compassionate, atoned for their iniquity and did not destroy them. He restrained his anger often and did not stir up all his wrath. That the God of the Bible is not short-tempered, moody, and easily provocable. In fact, he has an incredibly, incredibly long fuse. Pagan worshipers, they can never be sure what would anger their gods. Meanwhile, the Hebrews were never uncertain. It was always sin that would arouse God's anger. God's anger is aroused by unrepentant sin because he loves that which is true and pure and good. And sin is destructive of that which is true and pure and good. Which brings me to a third reason why people reject this notion of a wrathful God. Many believe it violates God's attributes of love, compassion, and mercy. Many universalists like like Marcion fall into this category, believing that all people will encounter only the attributes of God's compassion, God's grace, God's mercy, and God's love at the expense of the attributes of God's justice and holiness. Let's just take one of those attributes, God's love, for the sake of time this morning. The argument is fairly simple. God is love, and love is irreconcilable with the idea of a wrathful God that would cast a person into the darkness of eternal torment, which at first glance seems to sound pretty logical. However, what people who would articulate that fail to acknowledge is that God's love is a love that's permeated by his holiness. I think Nobody says it better than A.W. Pink who says, Divine love is not a sentimental passion which overrides moral distinctions. God's love is a holy love, and because it is such, he hates all evil. In other words, God's love cannot be separated from his holiness. God's love does not make his holiness expendable. The love of God is not made manifest among us by sweeping our sin under the rug. We talked about that from the legal angle last week. It would make him a terrible judge. God's love is a holy love, and if his love cannot be separated from his holiness, then to diminish his holiness is actually to diminish his love. And so there are a lot of people in the world who are setting aside the holiness of God, and in doing so are actually belittling God's love. That the brighter his holiness shines, the brighter his love shines as the two are inseparable. His love is a holy love, and because he's holy, he must punish sin. Because he's a holy God who loves that which is true and pure And good, he will pour out his wrath upon sinners. Again, Leon Morris, he says, quote, The wrath of God is real, and the writers of the New Testament books, no less than the old, make this clear. We must reckon with that wrath. Unpalatable though it may be, our sins, my sins, he says, are the object of that wrath. If we are taking our Bible seriously, we must realize that every sin is displeasing to God and that unless something is done about the evil we have committed, we face ultimately nothing less than the divine anger. Sobering, isn't it? 
Now, if that were all that the Bible had to say about the wrath of God, we'd all be done for. We'd all be done for because we're all sinners. But, but here's where the beautiful facet of the cross known as propitiation is actually meant to shine. The doctrine of propitiation declares that in Christ, we've been rescued from the wrath of God. The divine anger has been averted. Coming back to the distinction between the pagan understanding of propitiation and the Christian understanding, in Christianity, propitiation is not something that we do to appease God, but rather it's something that God has done for us. That Jesus drank the cup of God's wrath down to the dregs for you and me. That we have been saved by Christ from God's wrath by his absorbing the wrath of God in our place. That in Christ, you could say, the just, holy, and good wrath of God against our sin has been fully satisfied and thus God is able to look upon us favorably. It's unbelievable. Coming back to the passages of scripture we started with this morning, if you think of this word propitiation as a wrath-bearing sacrifice, those verses read something like this. 1 John 4.10, In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the wrath-bearing sacrifice for our sins. Notice where John starts there. In this is love. He says, love on display is the doctrine of a wrath-bearing Savior on our behalf. Romans 3.25, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a wrath-bearing sacrifice by his blood to be received by faith. Hebrews 2.17, therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make a wrath-bearing sacrifice for the sins of the people. In an effort to allow this facet of the cross to shine a little bit more, let me just hit you with a number of scholarly quotes that capture the essence of this doctrine. John Murray, in his fantastic work, The Atonement, he says, The doctrine of propitiation is precisely this, that God loved the objects of his wrath, the world, so much that he gave his own son to the end that he, by his blood, should make provision for the removal of his wrath. It was Christ so to deal with the wrath that the loved would no longer be the objects of wrath and love would achieve its aim of making the children of wrath the children of God's good pleasure. Leon Morris, to quote him again, he says it this way, God loves the right, he's holy, and therefore he is in vigorous opposition to every evil. But because God loves, he provides the way whereby his beloved are delivered from the wrath that would otherwise engulf them. Or, as concisely as you could possibly put it, John Stott says it this way. He says, God himself gave himself to save us from himself. I would go so far as to say, to diminish the reality of God's wrath is to diminish not only that which Jesus suffered, but that which Jesus conquered on our behalf. It's to diminish the the drops of blood that Jesus sweat in the Garden of Gethsemane as he saw the cup of God's wrath that awaited him on the cross. It's to diminish his agonizing declaration on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That Jesus is our wrath-bearing, hell-conquering Savior. So the gospel declares, he drank the cup of God's wrath down to the dregs for you so that by way of the finished work of Jesus Christ, you can now stand in the presence of the 5,000 degree centigrade holiness of God and not be incinerated in an instant, but rather enjoy making much of him forever. That there is no wrath for those in Christ. There is no fury 
for those in Christ. Which leads me to some of the personal implications of this particular facet of the cross. Number one, as simple as I could put it, we need not fear the wrath of God. That unlike the pagan religions of the world, we don't have to live under the fear of God's righteous anger. It's been dealt with forever in Christ. Anybody walk around picturing God as an angry curmudgeon in the sky waiting to zap you with lightning bolts? You don't have to think that way. That's not the God of Christianity. He's not waiting to zap you with lightning bolts. He's not chomping at the bit just waiting for the moment that you get on his bad side. When God looks at you, he no longer sees a sinner destined for wrath. In Christ, God's wrath toward you has been replaced with God's favor and good pleasure. Let me say it. You can say it this way. There is no such thing as God's bad side for those who are in Christ Jesus. Ephesians chapter 2. James read part of this passage earlier. Paul begins that chapter with these words. He says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Here's where Paul makes the gospel turn. He says, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages, listen to this, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. That what Paul's saying is, if you're a Christian, you're no longer a child of wrath. Because Jesus has absorbed God's wrath on your behalf, God desires, in the words of the Apostle Paul, Ephesians 2 verse 7, God desires to show you the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness. And thus we need not fear the wrath of God. Secondly, we can stop functionally treating God like the so-called gods of paganism. Many of us, if we're honest, I'm part of this bunch. We've had those moments where we buy into the lie that if we check all the right boxes, if we perform all the right rituals before God, then God will be obligated at a bare minimum to not be angry with us. And if we're really lucky, he just might be obligated to do our bidding. It's why we wave our fists at God when we think we're living a good moral life and things don't go our way. You owe me, God. I performed all of the rituals. There are a lot of bartering, placating, box-checking, professing Christians in the world. A lot of Joe versus the volcano professing Christians. And that's just no way to live. The gospel declares that there's nothing that you have done that would cause God to love you less, and there's nothing that you can do that would cause God to love you more. You're loved perfectly in Christ. God is not like the so-called gods of paganism. We, we can stop treating him as such. We can repent of our functional paganism, you might say. We can rest in the identity we've been given by grace alone, through faith alone, in the wrath-bearing Jesus alone. And thirdly, we can know the freedom and joy of doing good works simply out of sheer gratitude to God. Going back to last week, there are some people who do good works in an effort to attempt to acquit themselves of their guilt because they, they fail to believe the doctrine of justification. But there are others of us who do good works motivated by fear. 
There's nothing to fear for those who are in Christ, this doctrine declares. Because Jesus has appeased God's wrath, we don't have to. That rather than offering sacrifices of appeasement, we can offer sacrifices of praise to our loving and merciful and kind God. Now, as I mentioned last week, each of these facets is going to hit each and every one of us differently. For some of us, it's not guilt and condemnation going back to last week that we struggle with most. For some, it may not even be fear having to do with this week's facet that we're talking about that you struggle with most. And that's okay. We're all different. If the last couple weeks have yet to prick your heart, stick around, hang on. I'm confident that at least one of the doctrines to come, uh, God will use to awaken your heart to something that he wants you to see. But in the meantime, I said this last week, one thing I think we can say about each and every week of this series is that each of these facets has both communal value and missional value. What do I mean by that? Well, communally, whether or not you struggle with fearing God's wrath and judgment or not, there are brothers and sisters around you who do. This is the facet of the cross that speaks most readily to their hearts. And by you better understanding the doctrine of propitiation and how it impacts people's lives, God can use you to breathe life and hope into the lives of other Christ followers. I mean, let me just ask you the question. Has God brought any brothers or sisters into your life who struggle with an unhealthy fear of God? Has God brought any brothers or sisters in your life who struggle with feeling like God's wrath still hangs over them? We can use this facet of the cross known as propitiation to declare to these brothers and sisters that there's nothing to fear for those who put their trust in Jesus Christ's wrath-bearing sacrifice. What about brothers and sisters who always seem to be trying to broker deals with God? God surrounded you with anybody like that in the church. We can use this facet of the cross known as propitiation to declare to those brothers and sisters that our God is not like the capricious gods of paganism. He's just not. Our, our position before him is not in constant flux based on what we do or don't do. Our position before him is secure based on what Christ has done. And thus we can help free those brothers and sisters from insecurity and despair in the midst of moral failure and from arrogance and fist-waving in the midst of moral success. We cannot put God in our debt. We've been given what we don't deserve in Christ. God owes us nothing, but he's given us his son. And we are perfectly loved in him. Lastly, what about the missional aspect of this facet of the cross known as propitiation? How can we use this beautiful facet of the cross to evangelize? How can we use it on the mission field? Well, similar to last week, the doctrine of propitiation has something to say to both the irreligious lost and the religious lost. To the irreligious lost, to those who believe that they can live however they want, believing that we're all going to experience God's love in the end, the doctrine of propitiation declares that God's love is a holy love, that the love of God is not made manifest by sweeping our sin under the rug. Because he's a holy God who does love that which is true and pure and good, he will pour out his wrath upon sinners. The doctrine of propitiation helps us to bring people face to face with their need for the wrath-bearing Savior, Jesus Christ. And to the religious lost, and there are many across the landscape of our context, to those who are adherents of a religious belief system that that always leaves them living in some form of uncertainty, always wondering if they've done enough to position themselves on God's good side, we have a message of hope and certainty. 
The doctrine of propitiation declares that Jesus drank the cup of God's wrath down to the dregs. Not one drop is left for those who trust in Jesus Christ. No having to die with your fingers crossed. That is a very different message than what many religions of the world are offering. And thus we have something unique to offer in the Christian worldview. You see how unique the Christian worldview actually is? As we continue to spin the jewel throughout this series, the the uniqueness and beauty and complexity of the gospel is just going to continue to shine brighter and brighter, layer upon layer. As we consider the ways that each unique facet of the cross is meant to shape our lives doctrinally, personally, communally, and missionally. And as I mentioned last week, we get the benefit of coming out on the other side stronger theologians, stronger believers, stronger siblings, and stronger missionaries. In a moment, we're going to continue to worship in a number of ways. We're going to sing some songs that declare Jesus has taken the wrath of God on our behalf, and we're going to celebrate that uh, in singing. There will be people in the back of the room to pray for you. If you're not a Christian and and you want to process some of this with someone, um, I would love to talk with you and engage some of this with you further if you're open to that. If you're a follower of Jesus and you just need someone to pray over you because you feel like you're, you're living under the weightiness of trying to broker deals with God, maybe even uh, uh, an unhealthy fear of God, there'll be people to pray with and for you in light of that. Uh, we'll worship through the receiving of communion. We take the bread here representing Jesus' broken body and dip it in the cup representing his shed blood. If you're a Christian, that meal is for you. As I've said every week, let's sit before we come and receive uh, of the elements with this beautiful truth that in Christ there is no wrath but only favor for us who are united to him by faith.